like to invite our doctor, uh, our, <laughs> we've, I've, that's a possessive pronoun, that is not a good thing. <laughs> we have just had a wonderful week with Dr. Daryl Bock um, teaching us, and so I feel like he belongs to <laughs> I feel like he belongs to us. He has been completely amazing. We have been deep into the book of Mark, and um, Dr. Daryl has been teaching us. Um, let me give you this, this um, ad first. He's a, best, a New York Times best-selling author, written over 40 books. So that's for those of you who really like to, <laughs> to read. Yes? <laughs> I thought they'd enjoy that okay. more. <laughs> On the other side, on the other side, he's also the senior research professor of um, New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, so he comes very, very well recommended. A special warm welcome to his wife, Sally, too, if you'd like to just get up and wave. Everybody would love to greet you. Yeah. So welcome. Welcome, Dr. Darrell. Lovely to have you with us. Thank you. Well, howdy, y'all. How y'all doing? I'm from the state of Texas, all right? <laughs> um, it is a huge privilege to be here in your beautiful country and to be in Pretoria, and we have really enjoyed our time here. This is my second time to South Africa, but I've spent a lot of time in various countries in the British Commonwealth. I did my doctoral work in Scotland, so, you know, I've kind of been to the homeland, and then... Uh, I've spent time in Australia and New Zealand every other summer, and it looks like I'm going to be spending time in South Africa every other summer. Now, I know it's your winter, but it's our summer, so you just got to understand where I'm coming from. And just to show you that I know a little bit about your world, I understand that, you're, uh, that, that, uh, that sports is really can be important, and so I just want to give you a little look at how an American sees some Commonwealth sports, because you all have sports that we really don't have, or if we're aware of them, we're barely aware of them. And I just kind of want to go through the American impression of some Commonwealth sports with you, just so you can, you know, get to know me a little bit and understand that I really am a strange person. So, um, so let's start with cricket, okay? You know that wonderful game where these guys wear these strange pads and they do this with the bat and they're at the crease and that kind of thing. And you know, cricket, test cricket, is a wonderful game to learn a foreign language by. It's how I learned German, okay? Because you watch the TV, you hear the yell, you watch the instant replay, and you know you've got 45 minutes to study your verbs and vocabulary before anything of significance happens again. So, so cricket is a wonderful game to learn a foreign language by, and I'm so glad you accommodated those of us who are academics by introducing a sport that we could follow and still learn at the same time. And then there's rugby, okay? Rugby, the only game that starts off, and now and again you've got this moving anthill that just kind of happens, you know? And everybody likes one another in rugby some of the time. All right, and then they're beating up on each other the rest of the time, and it's just, I, I'm having trouble putting that all together, but what we really love about rugby, my wife and I remember this from our time in Scotland, when they were introducing American football to British watchers on the BBC, okay, um, they were trying to explain American football, and they were using rugby as the point of comparison, and the one line that we remember goes something like this. 
In American football, they call a score a touchdown, but they don't actually touch the ball down, okay? And so we went, that enamored us to rugby. Then there is this wonderful game called netball, okay? Now, netball is this wonderful game, and, and yet I asked myself, you forgot the backboard, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, you've made the game much harder than it ought to be. There ought to be a backboard up there, okay? So that, but my favorite, my absolute favorite game is darts, all right? Darts, you know how it goes. 180. All right, right? Now, actually, philosophers of sport are actually debating whether darts is a sport or not, okay? Now, granted, for this arm, okay, it's probably, there's probably some exercise. I would call it a minimal loss of calories, but it is happening, right? But then there's what's happening with this other arm, and we still haven't figured out whether that qualifies as sport or not. So, so that's our take on American sports. You know, culture is an interesting thing, and the impact on culture is also a very interesting thing. And so what I want to do with you is I want to look back and ask this question, what made the early church so effective? I mean, think about it for a second. The early church began in a time when there was the huge Roman Empire way over there in Rome. And then tucked over, way over in another corner of the earth off the Mediterranean Sea was this little country of Israel. And in this little country of Israel in a place called Jerusalem, a group of 120 disciples, 120 out of that vast geographic area of the Roman Empire, 120 people gathered as believers after their leader was crucified on a cross, and left for dead. And then he raised, raised from the dead three days later, but they were still just 120 people. How did these 120 people end up spawning a movement that now reaches, well, just think about it. Um, it reaches here to South Africa. It reaches to my home in Dallas, Texas. I just came from Singapore and Hong Kong teaching, where there are believers there. I was teaching people who are believers in mainland China. Um, it literally spans the globe. How did it happen? What made the first church so effective? Now, the simple answer is to say God's power in the Holy Spirit, and that's certainly true. But there's a passage in Acts that I want to look at. Actually, there are two passages in Acts that I want to look at that show what the early church did that equipped the people with the work that God was doing in their life in such a way that they could be effective. Because I think it's a good checklist on where we are as a community and as a church. So if you brought your Bibles with you, turn with them, if you would please, to Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. We're not going to look at the speech at Pentecost. We're going to look at the passage that comes right after that. Now, I want to do a little kind of survey here. So how many of you brought your Bibles? If you brought a Bible that's bound, that's like a book, hold it up nice and high so I can see it. All right, look at that. 
All right, those are all the Bible bearers. All right, now, there's probably another group in here. You have your Bible on your phone or on your tablet, okay? If you have a digital Bible, hold it up nice and proud. Look at that. Look at those. So, okay, I'd say it's about two to one, okay? Okay, for every two hardback Bibles, old school, all right? All right, we've got, we've got those on their phones and tablets, new school, Okay, now I'm not applying the little word of exhortation we got here, but think about it, all right? Now, if you have a Bible on your phone, we like to call them smartphones, right? At least we do in the States. Do you call them smartphones here? Okay, yeah, very intelligent little gadgets, these things. But if your smartphone has a Bible on it, I want to rename it. It's a spiritual phone, okay? All right, huh? Yeah? Those of you who have your Bibles on your smartphones, hold them up nice and proud. There you go. And we've now labeled them all spiritual phones. We could turn the lights out in here and we'd still see. Okay? All right. So turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. And normally when this passage is handled, verse 42 carries all the baggage, all the points that are made out of this paragraph come out of verse 42. But I'm going to try and draw some points out of other parts of the passage with you. And then we're going to go to one other scene in the early church that I think shows why the early church was so special and so effective. So chapter 2, verse 42, and I'm going to read down initially through the paragraph to the end of the chapter, and then we'll come back and discuss it. So here we go. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Reverential awe came over everyone, and many wonders and miraculous signs came about by the apostles. All who believed were together and held everything in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anyone had need. Every day they continued to gather together by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread from house to house, sharing their food with glad and humble hearts, praising God and having goodwill of all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number every day those who were being saved. Sounds like a pretty energetic, exciting community. And that's what it was. Now let's go back up to verse 42 and kind of get off the dime here. By the way, another, another sport you all have is athletics. You call it athletics. We call it track and field. Very confusing to me as an American, okay, because I thought all people who played sports were athletes, but apparently the only athletes that exist are the people who do track and field. And so just, just think about that for a second. And so it says, let's go through, the, and of course what launches athletics, of course, is the gun at the start. And that's what this church is. This gun, this church, is the, is the community in the blocks at the start of the race of what becomes the history of the church. So let's see what drives them. Let's see what got them going. First it says, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The first thing that should be a mark of any good, solid church is that people are taking in the Word of God that they are devoted to the apostles' teaching. We still stand today on the shoulders of what it is that the apostles have passed on about their experience of Jesus Christ. 
One of the points that I said this week to the group as we were studying the Gospel of Mark together is, what did the early church call a gospel before it got the name gospel? Okay? You know, we academics, we stay up long nights trying to think up questions like this. Okay? So what did you call a gospel before it was called a gospel? And there's a church father named Justin Martyr in the second century who used to call the Gospels the Apostolic Memoirs, which I think is a terrific name. It's the memories and the recollections that the apostles had of their experience with Jesus. And this early church in Jerusalem, of course, which was filled with apostles, could sit back and reflect on what it was that the Lord had taught them and could recall the things that the Lord had done in their midst. And that was an encouragement to the, to the church. And the church has never lost its love for understanding the way and will of God through the Word of God and through the apostolic teaching. And really the New Testament that we have is nothing but the recollection of that earliest generation's experience of Jesus Christ and what it meant to be in touch with Him, what He taught the early church, the way He called on people to live, etc., so a solid church is going to be engaged in the apostles' teaching. They're going to look back to what it is that people directly experienced when they were with the Lord, and as they sought to write that down and pass that on to us, they're going to absorb that teaching. And we need that teaching. We need that teaching because the world comes at us 24-7. I like to tell my students when they're in my classes, as I'm teaching them about being a pastor and leading a church, that you really have a difficult challenge. The difficult challenge is, is that the culture and the world surrounds us and bombards us with a message and a way of life and a way of thinking about things, and it comes at us 24-7, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 52 weeks out of the year, 365 days out of the year, 366 in leap year, and it just keeps coming. And you are going to be able to teach your people, and they're going to be in church maybe an hour and a half, like you are here this morning. Maybe they'll attend a Bible study now and again, another hour or two, and then they're on their own. Now, I don't know about you, but that looks like odds that don't look too favorable. 24 times 7 versus a few hours a week. So the only way for the Lord to work on the way we think about Him and engage with Him and walk with Him, at least one of the major ways, is to engage with His Word. And the church is committed to helping people do that through the apostles' teaching. The second thing that makes a church very, very effective beyond the apostles' teaching comes next. And it says, and a fellowship. Now, fellowship is a very important word. It's the word koinonia in Greek, and it has the idea of participating together, a participation in which we share. We hold things in common, and we share in those common things, and we participate in life together. The Christian faith ultimately is not about ideas. As important as teaching and doctrine is, the Christian faith ultimately is about transforming relationships. Not just the way we relate to God, but the way we relate to one another. How do I say that? 
And this moment is for Natasha, who's on holiday. The Bible tells me so. How do I know that? Think about the great commandment. The great commandment says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. And there's this ethical triangle that runs through the Scripture. In the Ten Commandments, we get the same thing. The first half of the Ten Commandments deals with my relationship to God. The second half of the Ten Commandments deals with my relationship to others. And there's a connection between the two. The way in which I relate to God and the way in which He relates to me and the way in which He forgives me, the way in which He loves me is supposed to then direct and instruct me about how I relate and interact with others and how I love them. So there's this ethical triangle. One level is vertical towards God. The other level is horizontal towards others. And that's supposed to impact me. And a church that has fellowship together, that has participation in life together, not only thinks about how they interact with God, they actually relate to one another in terms of how God has interacted with them. And it makes for a powerful community. And that's why the gathering together that the church does, whether it be to worship or to engage in ministry or to engage in instruction or to engage in reflection, helps the community to gain its strength and its ability to represent God in the world. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but in the epistles, Paul calls the church the body of Christ. And for a long time, I thought to myself, why would you call the church the body of Christ? It seems like a strange name for the church. But if you think about it, this is what the church is. The church, as a community, is the representation of God's presence in the midst of an visibly absent Lord. Jesus sits in heaven with God. He exercises His presence and power in us through the Spirit of God, but He physically, visibly is absent. People don't see Him. But they do see the community of people who believe in Him, and they are the body of Christ, they represent His presence in the midst of a visibly absent Jesus. Well, how do you show that presence? What does that presence look like? Well, it's a presence framed by the teaching that God gives us on the one hand, and it's a presence demonstrated by the way the church relates to one another on the other. And without that relational dimension, you do not see the presence of God interacting at a human level. So how we fellowship and engage with one another is very important. So the second element that's important to the way a functioning church works that makes it powerful is the idea of fellowship. So there's teaching and fellowship. The third thing in the list is the breaking of bread. Now this isn't just sharing a meal with one another. When we see the phrase, the breaking of bread in the New Testament, often what we're talking about is what unites us. What unites us is the ability to sit down together and share the elements of the Lord's table and to be reminded that what unites us is the death and offering of Jesus. That that's what makes us one. And that that offering and that death has pulled people from every tribe and every nation. I'm from the United States. 
you're from South Africa. Some of the people I've taught recently are from China. Others are from Singapore. A world gathering. And what unites us? What unites us is God's love, God's grace, God's sacrifice. And when we break bread together around the Lord's table, when we break bread together, we are reminded of what has and who has pulled us together. And so we might not agree on everything that we talk about in the Christian faith, but there is one central thing we absolutely agree on. And that is without God we are nothing. Without His grace we do not taste His forgiveness. Without His forgiveness we do not have the blessings of a walk of eternal life with the living God. And without what God has done in our lives we would be wandering. And so this church community understood what pulled it together was what Jesus Christ had done on their behalf and they broke, broke bread together like a family and settled around a table in a context of hospitality. So we've got the apostles teaching, we've got fellowship, we've got the breaking of bread and then the last thing in this initial verse is prayer. I've got this relational dimension of God in which he's going to work in my life. I've got the teaching that helps to frame the way, way in which I'm going to work. I've got this relationship with the breaking of bread in which I am centered around what it is that Jesus Christ has done on my behalf. And I have to remain in touch and in communion with the living God. And the way I do that is through prayer. Those moments of silence when we reconnect with the living God and we hear his voice and we pray for situations in our own lives and for others who have needs and we gather together. And in the midst of this, the Lord has given us a wonderfully beautiful prayer that we're all supposed to pray together. It's, often, it's called the Lord's Prayer by custom but it really is the disciples' prayer. It's a prayer he taught disciples to pray for one another. And I teach, I'm a professor, so I'm going to give you a little touch of grammar to reflect on. When you spell out disciples' prayer and you write it on a page, our tendency is to think that the way we would do it is D-I-S-C-I-P-L-E apostrophe S and then prayer. But that's not the way this prayer works. It goes D-I-S-C-I-P-L-E-S and then the apostrophe. Because it's a prayer we're supposed to pray together for one another to indicate our mutual dependence on God. Just as we gather around the table in the breaking of bread and we remember how Jesus Christ is the magnet that's pulled us all together by what he's done on our behalf, so we pray for one another in a, as a group, listen to the prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Be set apart. That's what hallowed means. Holy be your name. It means be set apart. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a request. And then it goes this way. Give us our daily bread. That is 
a community request. I'm not just praying, give me my daily bread. Give us our daily bread. And we're praying for one another. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass or have debts against us. Again, our. It's a mutual forgiveness that we're praying for one another. Not only am I supposed to be forgiving to you, but you're supposed to be forgiving to me. Why? Because God has been forgiving to us. Or lastly, and lead us not into temptation. I'm using the, the Lucan version. Lead us not into temptation. We're praying for spiritual protection. It isn't that God is in the habit of leading us into protection, into, into danger, but it is that if God doesn't protect us, that's where we'll go. We're prone to wander. And so lead us out of temptation and deliver us from evil. That's the Matthean version, has that addition. We're praying for one another. We're caring for one another. We're thinking about one another. When we sing in worship, oftentimes, we need to be singing for one another and what we all are doing. There are a lot of hymns that are in the first person singular. I pray for what God has done for me. But really, when we think biblically about the way we sing and we worship, we should be singing and praying and praising for what God is doing for all of us simultaneously. We're a community of people in whom God is active and is working. And what makes a community powerful is to realize that, it, that God is working through all of us at one time or another. I'm going to drive that point home at the end of this message. You see, because oftentimes when we ask and think about the church, the question we ask is this, what has my church done for me lately? And we evaluate a church, we ask, well, what is the church doing for me? Is it enhancing my life? Is it causing me to walk with God? Is it encouraging me? And certainly a church should do that. But what makes a community of God effective? What makes a community of God powerful is not when people are asking, what should the church be doing for me, but what can I give back to the church to make it a more effective community? So these are the first four elements of a great church. They're engaged in the apostles' teaching. They are committed to fellowship. They're committed to relationship to one another. They're engaged in the breaking of bread. They fellowship together and they fellowship around the unity that they have in the Lord. And they stay in communion with God. They stay in connection with Him of prayer. If you want a real quick checklist for how you're doing in your walk of God, just go through those four things. And just ask yourself, how it's, how's it going? What's going on? As I've said to you, though, many people, when they teach this passage, teach it just from that one verse. And there's other stuff going on I don't want us to miss. So let's keep going. It says, Reverential awe came over everyone, and many wonders and miraculous signs came about by the apostles. What's going on in verse 43 is this community is ministering to the larger community in the larger world even though the larger world isn't often responsive to them. They continue to minister. They continue to show God's presence in their midst. The emphasis on signs and wonders means that God is showing his presence in the midst of the larger community and the larger world. And even though when the world pushes back on Christians, Christians extend a hand of invitation to people to come into sacred space by continuing to minister to those around them. That's verse 43. Or verse 44, here's one we tend to skip. 
All who believed were together and held everything in common. They began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anyone had need. What in the world is going on there? That's not socialism and it's not communism because they weren't being required to do this. They voluntarily held their possessions with such open hands that they met needs in the community. They showed their love and their stewardship for what God had given them by sharing what they had so that people could function and no one went without need. And they were generous in the possessions that they have and the way in which they use their resources to build the kind of community that they had. All of this is very, very important in building the kind of community that makes for an effective church. Verse 46, every day they continued to gather together by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread from house to house, sharing their food with glad and humble hearts. Everything about this community said, what I have is not just my own. Everything about this community said, what I have God gives me to steward and use in such a way that it can also be a source of ministry to others. And they held what was theirs with open hands. And they did so in a way that would serve others. And so the passage ends, praising God and having goodwill of all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number every day who was being saved. What made this church special is they were committed to the Lord's teaching. They were committed to fellowship. They were committed to their unity around the Lord and their worship. They were committed in community to prayer. They showed all that by the way in which they continued to serve even the people outside of them. They served the people outside of them in amazing ways. They continued to show their care by the way they cared for one another. They held what they had with loose hands, and everybody felt connected. They were participating in life together. They were engaged in fellowship. They were in koinonia. And people saw it, and it was like a magnet. Because people were saying, those people are different. They relate to each other in a different way than the world I'm used to living in. And it was a draw. It was a powerful draw that people could relate to one another on such a profound and personal, interpersonal, relational level. And it drew people. And it was extraordinary. How extraordinary was it? Turn with me now to the second passage I want to briefly look at in Acts chapter 4. Because one of the things that we see from this community is how absolutely extraordinary it was. You see, they had gone out into the community and the apostles had used their gifts. And their apostles were engaged in healing. But in the midst of the healing there was an objection because of the way Peter and John in particular were preaching about what the cause of that power was. And the debate was, they were saying in the context of a Jewish audience that it was through Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus Christ that this had taken place. And the Jewish leadership believing that the God, the Father, is only one and there's no such thing as a trinity, there's no such thing as Jesus or the Spirit that is equal with him. They, they rejected that message. And so they arrested Peter and John. And this is the story of what happened after the first arrest, after the first persecution. Even in the midst of ministering in this community, in this world, there was pushback. And the question is, how did this exceptional community deal with the pushback that they got 
when the world didn't like some of what they were saying and doing. And that's where we are in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, it says this. Well, it'll start in verse 23. When they were released, that is from prison, Peter and John went to the fellow believers and reported everything the high priests and elders had said to them. High priests and elders had told them, don't preach in that name. Don't share that name with anybody. And they had responded by saying, Who are, are we going to obey men or are we going to obey God? They had a boldness and a faithfulness. It says, when they heard this, they raised their voices to God with one mind and said, Master of all, you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea that is everything in them, who said by the Holy Spirit, through your servant David our forefather, why do the nations rage and the people plot foolish things? The kings of the earth stood together and the rulers assembled against the Lord and his Christ. They're citing Psalm 2, and Psalm 2 predicts that people in the world will push back against what it is that God does in the world. And so they weren't surprised. And so they enter into prayer as they get the pushback. And what's interesting is what they pray for. They don't pray for two things I think I would pray for if I had been in that situation. They don't pray that the persecution be taken away from them. They don't pray for that. And they also don't pray to nuke those who are pushing against them, okay? They don't pray for that, to remove the enemies from their midst and to judge them. Here is what they pray. Huge lesson in this. For indeed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together in this city against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do as much as your power and plan had decided beforehand would happen. Now here's the prayer. And now, Lord, pay attention to their threats. And if I had written this prayer, I would have said, and judge them. But that isn't what they say. And grant to your servants to speak your message with great courage. While you extend your hand to heal and to bring about miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Two requests. They are, keep us faithful and bold in the midst of the rejection. Let us continue to speak forth your word and to witness in the midst of people who may not accept what it is that we're saying and doing. And then the second thing, just as amazing, is, and may we continue to serve and minister to the world that rejects us. May we continue to be witnesses, not just in the four walls of our church, not just to one another on Sunday, but when we are out there from Monday to Saturday. May we show forth what it is to belong to you, and may we be faithful in doing that. Amazing. It says, when they had prayed... The place where they assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God courageously. God answered their prayer, and he answered their prayer by giving them the ability to show forth this character that had formed the community. 
People who are devoted to the apostles' teaching. People who are devoted to fellowship. People who are devoted to the breaking of bread. People who are devoted to prayer. People whose allegiance showed in their relationships to one another and the way in which they held their resources with open hands to serve one another. People who continued to minister to the community that was pushing back against them. And it caught the world's attention. Here's what I'm saying to you. Often when we think about the church, we think about what the church does for us as individuals. What this passage is teaching us is the church that is effective is made up of people who are thinking about what they can give to the community so the community's testimony can go out into the world. I was thinking about how to illustrate this. And sometimes in our culture, there are really wonderful illustrations that are provided for us just in the natural flow of things. And in this particular case, the application of this message can come in one simple phrase. And it comes from that great theological corporation called Nike. Okay? I'm sure you've thought of Nike as a theological corporation. I mean, it's, it's immersed in global theology, okay? If you think about what the slogan is connected to Nike, you can tell me what it is. What's the slogan that Nike has for the world? Just do it. Just do it. God has given us his spirit to indwell us with gifts and capabilities that allow us to be the people of God, that mold and shape us into the people of God God wants us to be. And he doesn't want us to be that people just in the privacy of our own homes or in the four walls that make up a church. He has made us into those people to be witnesses to him and to represent him in the needy world because we are Christ's body. The representation of his very presence in the midst of his physical absence, and when people look at us, what they are supposed to see is a reflection of the Savior who saved us. How do you do it? What do you do? You dedicate yourself to the apostolic teaching. You dedicate yourself to the encouragement that comes through fellowship. You keep your eye on what unifies you, and you stay in prayer communion with God. You hold your hands loosely, and you go out into the world, and you minister, and you just do it. So my prayer for all of us today is a simple one. Let's draw on the resources that the earliest church drew on. Let's immerse ourselves in the apostles' teaching and learn. Let's participate with one another in life in a way that encourages us in our walk. Let's keep an eye on the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray to the Father that we might be bold and faithful. And then let's go out and minister to a world that needs the message that we have. And the application is simple, even though it's profound. And it is, just do it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather together 
to worship you and give you thanks for the profound gift that you gave us that not only gives us life to come that lasts eternity, but a quality of life that allows us to walk with you from day to day. What better connection could we possibly have than to be in touch with the one who created the world and who gives life? And yet you've given us gifts and enablements with the presence of the Spirit in our lives that is designed to shape us and mold us so that we can be your witnesses in the world, so that we can be Christ's body, so that we can be the visible presence of your work in the midst of a world that so desperately needs to see it. Give us the boldness to do so. Give us the grace to do so well. Give us the love to one another that will demonstrate that there's something going on in the church that the world needs to see. And give us the ability to depend on you in prayer and pray for one another for the strength to do it so that we might be effective, so that when we just do it, your name may be glorified. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen.